was a it was a duet, <coughs> terrible. <coughs> uh, hello, everybody. Hello. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 106. Psalm 106, we'll begin with prayer. Let's thank God for our time together to hear His Word and to be enlightened by it. Uh, To have the Word of God is always a great privilege and an honor, and we should always remember that. And uh, to be uh, ready and humble before Him, let's bow our heads and pray. Our Father in Heaven, thank You for another opportunity to hear Your Word. This is a precious time during our day to be before Your Word, before You, and to, by Your Spirit, be enlightened by it. Every word that is in Your Scripture is breathed by You. God breathed, inspired. And so there is nothing that we look at in Your Scripture that is not going to be edifying and important. As we look into the book of Psalms and we see the various prayers that are there, we are looking, Father, to improve our prayer life and to uh, gain more of our uh, relationship with you through prayer and to to not gain more of it, but to feel uh, or to experience you better, uh, to walk closer with you and to have um, your joy, your peace, your uh, comfort and your will more important, more prominent in our in our lives, and so Father, we ask that through your Spirit, our hearts would be enlightened by the things that we'll learn, and we ask in Christ's name, Amen. All right, so uh, so far in the Psalms that we have uh, seen prayers based on God's creation, God's law, and now God's history. And we're going to do a few more of these before we move on. We definitely won't be touching upon every psalm. But uh, I'm I'm hoping from this part of our study that it will guide all of us to use the psalms as a source of prayer, as well as a source of just reading and enrichment. Um, Because there's there's so many of them, and and all of them uh, touch upon God's relationship with man. Uh, and so they are responses by mankind, God's people, God's saints, responses by God's saints to God in various, many various situations. And there's not a situation that we could face that wouldn't be addressed by one or more Psalms. Uh, and so there's really no order to this either. Um, I'm, I'm actually just using the order that I've uh, uh, gathered from one of the books that I'm reading, but there's is no particular order, uh, and therefore, if you if you are reading the Psalms, and I encourage you greatly, you could either start from the beginning, or randomly uh, choose a Psalm here and there. Keep track of the ones that you've that you've read and learned or prayed upon, prayed about, and then and then you know, and by over time, you will become familiar with this book, which is God's songbook and prayer book. So, uh, again, we've seen psalms based, uh, uh, prayers in the psalms based on God's creation and God's law and now God's history. 
And uh, we have in these three in particular that speak about the history of God's people. And as you would expect, since they these in each of these, there's a historical narrative. So they're kind of long, compar- comparatively long to the other Psalms. They're not really all that long. But Psalm 78, Psalm 105, and Psalm 106. And we're going to start at the end in 106, which we looked at yesterday and, and move backwards. But uh, these tell about the history of the people of God on earth and about unmerited elected and grace and the faithfulness of God. We find that uh, the people of God are not looked upon in a good light in these Psalms. Uh, and that's because it's people in general, uh, whether it's just the, it's the nation of Israel in general that is looked at uh, because they're summaries. Uh, in the narratives, we have individuals also amongst the people who are faithful, men like Moses, men like David, men like Samuel, uh, who are faithful to God. Uh, but we also see in the narratives of Scripture that in general, the people of God, meaning the nation of Israel, uh, lack gratitude and they're very forgetful uh, and they're unfaithful. And we wonder, or it would at least seem, that in general, mankind is that. Mankind, fallen mankind, uh, doesn't seem to get with it. Uh, with uh, thousands and thousands of years of history, mankind in general doesn't seem to care about God or care about having a creator or care about his law. And, um, and that just seems to be the way of things. Uh, but what we have in the midst of it are these individuals who stand out. Um, and in fact, in Psalm, I think it's, well, I can't remember, it's 106 or or one of the other ones that we looked at on creation, that Moses is mentioned as standing out as one who interceded for the people and prayed for them. And so we have uh, the lesson for us is, you know, though the herd generally goes against God, that we can stand up against that. So I think, I I forget who who was the one who said that the dead fish goes with the... um, with the flow of the stream and the live fish swims against it. And that's what we have to be as individual believers. Uh, No matter how many people, we see in general that this is true. It's true here in this psalm, in all three of these psalms, and in the narrative of the Bible, that people in general, even the people of Israel who knew God's law and saw all his miracles in, in the wilderness, in the Exodus generation, went against him. And we as individuals can stand up against that and stand in faithfulness. So that's one of the lessons you get from this. And this is something that should be uh, a consistent uh, theme in your prayer life is to stand against the herd because we're always going to be pressured by that. So Psalm 106 summons us to thanksgiving, praise, commitment, confession of sin, and to call for God's help when we need to be delivered. <coughs> All of this is done with history in mind. What I mean by that is that we look back at what God has done. And if God is faithful 2,000 years ago, 4,000 years ago, and in my life last month, if God is faithful, then he'll always be faithful, and he'll be faithful to me. He wants us to know his history. 
It's, it's, he's not really, I don't think, all that concerned. I'm, I really like history, and I love learning about it, but he's not really all that concerned with you knowing secular history, but there's a great amount of the Scripture that is historical, and God puts it there for us to learn it. And so we would call that God's history, uh, which is not, you know, the Bible's not a history book. It's very selective as what, on what it tells us. But what it does tell us we should be familiar with so that we can look back at that and say, well, you know, I'm in a situation that was similar to Abraham's. Right? <clears throat> you know, not exactly, of course. <laughs> that would be very hard. But it's something that, you know, he had to deal with that's similar to what I am. Or, or Sarah, or Mary, or, you know, or any of the 12 Marys that's in the gospel. Uh, or any of them that you can recall. It's extremely helpful and those who write these psalms are real people who have faced things that we're going to face in a similar manner. <clears throat> so in uh, verses 1 through 3, well, just a quick review of yesterday. And, you know, it's, it's not, shouldn't be quick anyway. And, you know, these psalms are meant to be read again and again and again. Praise the Lord. Oh, give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. For his loving kindness is everlasting. Loving kindness means his covenant promise. His loving kindness is everlasting. Who can speak of the mighty deeds of the Lord or can show forth all his praise? How blessed are those who keep justice, those who practice righteousness at all times. And so in the first three lines, we have a praise to the Lord and a thankfulness to the Lord. And then... Uh, a praise again in verse 2 for all the mighty deeds of the Lord. And the psalmist is indicating here that the mighty deeds are so many, who can really speak of them? Uh, and, and so thankfulness to God for all he's done for you. Praise to God for his daily works in your life. And searching in study and in prayer and in your commitment, or really looking, in, uh, uh, searching for commitment in your life, Notice in verse 3, how blessed are those who keep justice, who practice righteousness at all times. And that is a search in our lives in using prayer for this, but not only prayer, of course, it's study and application, for a, a greater commitment to the commands of God. Uh, as is very true of all believers, is that all believers are called to a complete commitment to God's will. Uh, there's no um, intermediate calling. You know, I think a lot of believers would like to think that God wants them to be committed like for an hour on Sunday uh, to him or, you know, a day here or a day there, but nothing, nothing too serious, you know. And, and we're, and of course the flesh loves that. But we're called to commit our entire lives to him. All of our minds, all of our speech, all of our thinking, all of our doing to him, to his will, to his law. And that's why in this psalm, as in many others, and as well as in the Lord's Prayer, there's the confession of sin. Because none of us do it perfectly, and we must be aware of that. And so that not, not so that we can say, hey, we're sinners, so what's the big deal? but so that we can continue to fight the good fight of faith and overcome the sin that so easily entangles us. So, 
we have in uh, the first three lines, thankfulness for all God has done for us. Praise to God for all his daily works in your life. And I mean, do mean daily that God is working. The very hairs of your head are numbered. The, the lilies of the field, the sparrows, they're all taken care of by God very intimately. And then God says to us that you are known very intimately and that God is working in your life. And we need to be thankful for that every day. There's not a day that goes by that God isn't intimately concerned and very deeply concerned about us and working in our lives, whether we see it or we don't. Uh, Also, searching for commitment, as we see in the last line. So then in verse 4, the psalmist says, Remember me, O Lord, in your favor or your grace towards your people. Visit me with your salvation that I may see the prosperity of your chosen ones and that I may rejoice in the gladness of your nation, that I may glory in your inheritance. The prosperity of your chosen ones is, again, this is a lovely line, it's the prosperity that comes to all who believe. God's chosen ones prosper. And what the psalmist wants here is nothing more than what others would receive. In other words, he's not competitive. I don't want me to get more than he would give to you uh, who also follow him. So for all of us who are chosen of God, who follow him, the prosperity of what God gives to me, I don't want more than you. I don't want less than what God wills. And so therein lies a petition for God to visit grace upon you and a grace for deliverance. So show me favor, visit me with your, you know, we're already saved people, so visit me with your salvation as a deliverance, a salvation from various circumstances. And then comes confession in verse 6. The psalmist writes, we have sinned like our fathers, we have committed iniquity, we have behaved wickedly. Uh, So here we have the petitions concerning our confession of sins, their sins that we know of, and those that we don't. And it's not like, we'll talk about that in a second. First off, I am of the belief that believers sin daily. Every single believer does. I also understand that some sin more than others. But we have to take into account the many things that uh, should have been done that we didn't do. And we wouldn't possibly even know what those are because we didn't do them. Uh, The fact that the sins of the mind often center around things like self-deception or self-absorption or false motivation. Like I can do something good, but I did it for the wrong reason. Uh, And again, and those could be so-called good things that I do that I may want to pat myself on the back for or that others may consider as good works, but they have no no way, and often because of my own self-deception, I don't know either whether I did those for the right reason. Uh, Added to that are all the sins that we do know of. And so there's quite a few. Uh, Jesus also told us that if you lusted in certain ways that you also did it. So if I committed the, the act in my mind, even if it were for a few seconds, I've done it. And so that's what the commands are. They're absolutely 100% pure. There's no compromise with them. And because of that, we're all sinners. We're sinners who fail. 
Jesus told us to pray, and this he put this in the prayer, so this would be every day. Forgive us our debts and our iniquities. And that's combining both Matthew and Luke's version of that prayer. Forgive us our debts, the debts are against God and our iniquities, as we forgive the debts of others. So in our daily prayers, we will always have sins to confess. We can also confess or admit to, if that feels better to you, the areas of weakness, which I know from the past. You know, my areas of weakness are things that I've become familiar with over time. Those are things that I can confess. And some will add, you know, some would say, and I know that some would fight me on this, that we shouldn't be confessing sins that we've done in the past. But they're not looking at confession the same way I am. A lot of people look at confession judicially. As if I hold the switch to God's power or to God's presence and I turn it on and off. So in other words, the Holy Spirit fills me when I confess sin, so I turn them on. When I, con- when I commit sins, I turn them off. And that actually makes me in control of the Holy Spirit. Uh, <clears throat> I don't find that to be the case in the scripture. What I find here is the fact that we are to overcome sin. Uh, it is not, we are not, when we confess, in any way acting judicially. We can't act judicially. What I mean by that is that we, judicial means that I go into the court before the Father and because of something I do, that I make things right between me and him. <clears throat> now, how could I possibly do that? As a sinner, there's no way I can do that. The only one who acted judicially on my behalf is the Lord Jesus Christ. He is my advocate. So, um, I'm not acting judicially here. What I am after is overcoming. So, notice Hebrews 9.14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit, offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? The blood of Christ means that I am forgiven of all sins. So, why would I need a cleansed conscience? Because I'm a sinner. The context here of Hebrews 9 is animal sacrifice in the Old Testament. Both Hebrews 9 and 10. And why did they offer animal sacrifices? Because they sinned. And I sin, but I need a clean conscience. And therefore, I can confess my sins before God, knowing I'm fully forgiven. And for the purpose of, well, several things. Why are we doing this? In my estimation, is... Cleansing our conscience, like again from Hebrews nine that we just saw. I can't, I can't walk around with the guilt of my past. So then someone would say, well, why bring up your past to God? Because I can so easily live in its guilt, and those weaknesses that I know from the past can, will will definitely continue in the future if I don't overcome them. You know, maybe today I feel like I've overcome my weakness. But have I? When will I know? Only in the future. I may know. I may think right now that I have overcome something, but like, and and usually these weakness, the weaknesses that we have in our souls are addictions. And I, I don't just mean drugs and alcohol. There are addictions to every kind of sin that people have. People are addicted to gossip. And, it, and it, it's terrible on their souls. People are addicted to judging others. People are addicted to bitterness. People are addicted to anger. People are addicted to self-pity. 
there's all kinds of things that people are addicted to. And God wants us to deal with them. You see, it's very easy to look at someone else and say, well, I don't have your addiction, but what one do you have? And have you dealt with that before God? Uh, and that's what this confession is. Uh, forgive us our sins. He says in the plural, our sins. And it's because they are many. They're in the past. They may be coming in the future. Not that we know what those are, but we do know what weaknesses we have if we're humble and honest with ourselves before God. And that's how I see this working. We're bringing our flawed self before God to deal with it rather than hiding it away and pretending it's not there. And because when we do that, that thing that we're not dealing with is hindering our spiritual life. It's hindering our commitment to the Father and, and our walk with Christ Jesus. So we cleanse our conscience then and this is very important, we take full responsibility. It's my dad's fault, it's my mom's fault, it's my, home, my upbringing, it's their fault, it's, you know, what? no, it's not. It's nobody's fault. And I heard that a tragic story of someone who's come from a family full of addiction and was abandoned and homeless, and man, I can't imagine how, to, how anybody would deal with that. And, you know, Abandoned at a very young age. And all around this person was addiction of all, kind, of all sorts and evil. <clears throat> and, you know, if someone like that falls into prison, uh, falls into their own addictions, and we say, well, you know, we understand. But do they get, <clears throat> you know, does, and... and for a, such a person as that to overcome things that for us are easy to do would be monumental. But yet still the calling is upon them by God to not live a lifestyle of sin. To be born again and to thrive in this life. And so we have to take... It's, though some of us have faced far more issues than others. Uh, we each have to take full responsibility for our sins and then find the foundational cause and all of this leading to overcoming. There is, a foundation, there is a foundational cause to our weaknesses and we can find those. Deal with that. But to deal with that, we have to bring the whole thing out to God. Whole thing. And, you know, and, and that takes courage and humility but, you know, God says, bring it because I have forgiven you. So when you bring it, I'm not going to smash you in the face and tell you what a loser and, and say, how could you possibly, and I can't believe you're my child, and blah, blah, blah. He's not going to do that. He is for us, not against us. He is going to help us to overcome. But in our pride, we don't want to admit, even a God who we know sees everything in our souls, we don't want to admit to him what this weakness is all about and that we possess it and that we're in the wrong. But it must be done. Uh, the Bible tells us that we don't deal judicially with sin. First off, we couldn't because we're all guilty. Secondly, Christ did deal with it on our behalf on the cross. That was the judicial act of God to, to cleanse us from sin and to call us justified. 
Therefore, we don't confess sin to remove any judicial barriers between us and God. We are not told that confession results in the filling of the Spirit. That is not in the Scripture. We, what we are doing is discovering with God in light of his forgiveness how to overcome our areas of sin. And through our increased understanding of ourselves and our increased understanding of God and Christ's cross, overcoming our sin, our areas of sin. It's not going to make us sinless. The psalmist admits to sinning like his ancestors in verse 6. He said, I sinned like our father. But we can't imagine that he rejected manna in the wilderness, which is the history that he gives us here. He didn't do that. But he knows he has committed the same in the same manner, sinning just like his father's. Meaning that all of us are guilty. And this means that we can't really judge another, nor should we. <clears throat> and next, so confession is a part of daily prayer. And next is prayer is a way of recalling history that we should never forget. Uh, we must know God's history and not forget it. Neither in our own life or the history of the scripture. God's history in dealing with the world. One of the great problems, we see it here in Psalm 106, and also the same exact, almost same wording in Psalm 105 and Psalm 78, is that Israel kept forgetting. They kept forgetting what God had done for them. Uh, years, but years, they said, well, years would go by. They wouldn't forget it the next day, but a year from then, five years from then, they would forget. Uh, <clears throat> now, what God did was give them pain. And when they got pain, they remembered God. But was God going to keep them, or would God keep his people in constant pain? So as we'll see here, God's going to bring great discipline upon them, and that's when they're going to turn to God. They did this a lot. And we see this in the history of Israel, especially in the history of the judges. And so the pain would come, whatever discipline God would put upon them. Then they turn to God and say, oh, we remember now. And then when the pain was gone, they would forget. So what was God to do? Keep them in constant pain. But of course, you know, that has its own problems. If you have to, to follow God, you have to be in pain all the time. It means to follow God, you have to be forced all the time. And that's not what God is after. That's not a prosperous soul. A prosperous soul is not one that's forced to do something all the time. But all of us need to be forced from time to time. That's what pain and discipline does. It forces us to go a certain way. But what God is planning is that when he forces us down a certain path, that our eyes will open to the value of that path. So that when the pain goes away, we'll say, you know what? I'd rather stay here. I'd rather stay on this path and not go back to the other one. So therefore, comfort and prosperous times become a test of our remembrance. You know, when things get easy, things get calmer, things get comfortable, will we remember? And therefore, will we praise God? As is stated, it's not in here, it's in 105, I'll get there. Imagine a life where you're so full of joy because you know God. And that's the whole reason. Imagine a life where you're so filled with joy because you're seeking God. And that is the only reason you're filled with joy. Imagine. 
that whatever else happened in your life wouldn't matter because you're always see, you can always seek God. Your knowledge of God can't be taken away from you by anything or anyone. And imagine that that alone was the reason that your heart was filled with joy. That's exactly where God is leading us. So look at verse 6. We have sinned like our fathers. We have committed iniquity. We have behaved wickedly. Our fathers in Egypt did not understand your wonders. They did not remember your abundant kindnesses. They rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. And that rebellion was after they saw the ten plagues in Egypt, which wasn't that long ago from being, after being at the Red Sea when they freaked out. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name. Right? For what? For their sake? No. We've seen this too from the scripture, from the Psalms. That this life, even our prayer life, is not about us. It's about him. It's about glorifying him. And I'll just state, we stated this before, but I'll, I'll remind that when we're searching or seeking for something from God, we can seek the right thing when in context of that seeking, we want the glorification of Christ in our life and not ourselves. If we're seeking the glorification of Christ in our life, then what we're seeking for will be directly in the will of God. It'll be proper. So, verse 8, Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. And he led them through the deeps, as through the wilderness. So he saved them from the land of the one who hated them, the Egyptians. And redeemed them from the land of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then then they believed his words and they sang his praise. And they did. As soon as they came out of the Red Sea, this is in Exodus chapter 15. Somebody wrote a grand song to God and they all sang it. And it's a wonderful song. Then, verse 13, they quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel but craved intensely in the wilderness and tempted God in the desert. So he gave them their request, but sent a wasting disease among them. And the cycle goes around again. Cycle meaning that the pain would come. They'd be like, oh, God, you're right. And then they'd forget again. And around and around it went until they were all dead. (laughs) Uh, So... Do, at verse 13, after they came out of the Red Sea, they're, te- they're tested uh, very soon afterwards. So here's what we could possibly say, right? After they go through the Red Sea, they start to run short of water. as roughly 2 million people with no real um, uh, large water source. They're going to run out quickly, and they did often. But the, uh, Sorry, they, they didn't run out. They started to run out uh, the Levels went low. So they started to freak out. Uh, They found some water, and the water was bitter. And they complained. And that's what he's talking about in verse 13. They quickly forgot. And notice what he says. They didn't wait for his counsel. And you see that. And this is something that prayer is easily used for. Uh, I see you have a problem. I see that it needs to be solved. And I know that God is going to help me solve it. But when is he going to help me solve it? In this very moment? Tomorrow? An hour from now? A month from now? A year from now? I don't know. But it says they did not wait for his counsel. When they found the bitter waters, 
After, now think about it, ten plagues in Egypt, they come to the Red Sea, they freak out at the Red Sea, God splits the Red Sea for them to see, <laughs> they saw the sea, and all they go, they go through, their enemies are uh, all annihilated in the sea and all drown, and now they come to some bitter water and they really need water. So what is God going to do? And see, that's the right question. And the right answer is, whatever he damn well pleases in his time. What is God going to do? What he desires in his time? Who am I to tell God to hurry it up? And see, that's what is here. They quickly forgot his works. They did not wait for his counsel. Now, fortunately for us, God does never forget. Skip all the way down to the end in verse 43. Many times he would deliver them. They, however, were rebellious in their counsel and so sank down into their iniquity. Many times he would deliver, but they were rebellious. Nevertheless, verse 44, he looked upon their distress when he heard their cry and he remembered his covenant for their sake and relented according to the greatness of his loving kindness. He also made them objects of compassion in the presence of all their captors. The grace of God, the mercy of God, the patience of God, and the fact that he does not forget his covenant. So it says again in verse 45, he remembered his covenant for their sake. And, you know, in our prayer life... (laughs) What, what could come to mind here so easily is, do I want to be like these people? But there's also the comfort of when I fail, and I likely will, hopefully not like this, but I am a sinner and I'll fail in certain ways, hopefully just smaller ways than this, not becoming just completely rebellious, um, that God is going to be faithful to me. That his covenant, he's not going to forget. We're under the new covenant in Christ's blood. He's not going to forget that. Uh, So we're covered. We're forgiven. He's not going to leave us. His presence will always be with us. But do I want to be like these people, even though they're forgiven again and again and again? That, That first generation does die in the wilderness, almost all of them, except for Caleb and Joshua. They die. But... um you know, and this is something that could e- that very easily and I think importantly become a part of our prayer life. What kind of believer do I want to be and to talk to God about that? And then finally, this couple of the, the very last stanza, <clears throat> we call for the Lord's deliverance in our situations that we may finally praise him and give thanks. We uh, So it says in verse 47, save us, O Lord our God. Uh, this um, this is like our Hosanna, which is what when the people screamed Hosanna when Jesus was entering Jerusalem, that's what this Hosanna means, save us. Save us, O Lord, our God, and gather us from the nations to give thanks to your holy name and glorify in your praise. Sorry, and glory in your praise. Uh, <clears throat> the Israelites were dispersed, many of them, and that's why he says gather us from the nations and how that applies to us is that is frequently stated in especially in Peter in first Peter uh the opening of his letter he calls us aliens in an alien world and that's what we are being citizens of heaven 
seated with Christ in heavenly places, we are in this world uh, strangers or in a foreign land. And so we can say, and, and when we're in that foreign land, we're not in heaven, so we're going to be persecuted, we're going to suffer in various ways. And so from those sufferings, save us, O Lord our God. And this is a prayer. Uh, so what, for what reason did I want to be comfortable? Well, certainly we're realists. We would rather be comfortable, and we hope that God makes us comfortable. Uh, but also, and more importantly, hopefully, is that in verse 48, we would say, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel. Let all the people say, Amen, praise the Lord. To thank him and praise him for his magnificence. Uh, and that way I'd have to see his deliverance. If I think that I'm going to get myself out of this, or I'm going to do something that's going to get myself out of this, or uh, provide myself a means, a way of uh, escape, then I'm going to give thanks to me you know, if I do it. But when I'm depending on God, and as we just saw, and I'm waiting on God for his deliverance, uh, then I can see his deliverance and say thank you and praise his name. And that will be legit. I'm not just like saying it. I'm actually, I've anticipated his deliverance, I've asked for his deliverance, and I've seen his deliverance. And so I can thank him and praise him properly for who he is. <clears throat> So at the finish of the psalm, and we've seen this, right, in a number of psalms, at the front, and it says praise, right? So praise the Lord is the first line, right? And then what's the last line? Praise the Lord. Now, praise the Lord is, uh, you know, it's something that it has to be legitimate and has to be real. Just a, a minute to take on this. What if I don't feel like praising him? And oftentimes I don't. I say often enough, probably more than, than I would like, I'm sure. But if you don't feel like adoring the Lord, that's what praising is. It's adoring him, uh, glorifying him for what he has done. And say I don't feel like it. But does this mean that he's done nothing for me? It's interesting that, uh, say, yesterday, I could be adoring God for what he's done, and today, I don't really much feel like it. It's a different day. I'm a little more morose today, you know, and I, I don't feel like doing it. So should I not do it? I find it interesting that God, in his psalms, and especially in his psalms, he gives us prayers that say, praise the Lord. And look, if we're just going to say, all right, God, I'm going to close my eyes in Jesus' name, praise the Lord, and I'm done, and that's all I'm doing is saying the words, then I'm not doing it. So should I not do it? <clears throat> if we don't feel like praising the Lord, when you read a passage like this and you say, well, I should, go to your Father in prayer anyway and praise him for who he is. Now, this is instructional, what you're getting now, is this is go to God in prayer and praise him. Now, if you don't feel like it, remember, and if we're taking the Lord's Prayer, this has worked so well for me lately. If we're taking the Lord's Prayer, our Father who is in heaven, holy is your name, uh, and that at the start, that 
I start to think, and it only takes a minute or two, that I am the father's son, I am the father's son or daughter uh, through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ my Lord. That monumental sacrifice has made me forever, every day, a son or a daughter in his family possessing his name and that he is my father. And then that alone should start to shake the cobwebs off of your soul. It is often the case that we don't feel like praising the Lord on a given day because our mind is so occupied with, with world stuff or personal stuff or life stuff and our minds are occupied with it and so we're not in the mood because we're absorbed with stuff or details of life or what have you. And a moment to reflect on God and his faithful management of you and the world that you live in might be just the thing you need right now to snap you out of it. Because I can, look, we live a day at a time. If you blow, if you waste this day, this could be your last day on earth. And if you throw it away because you're occupied in your mind with life stuff, then uh, it's a wasted day. And since we live one day at a time, it's really where to look at every day as our life. We want to be snapped out of it. So that our day is one where we're thankful and alive, not bored and in the world's mire and muck, kind of sludging through it. That's a wasted day. We want to be thankful and alive. And the one who is thankful is one who knows. The one who knows is the one who knows God's history. And, And see, again... When you say, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name, you're claiming a history there, which is the history of redemption, which is the history of the cross. And just that thought alone may just be enough. I'm sure it would be. That would snap you out of a uh, mundane, morose kind of thinking. And so God's word becomes a gift to us. I mean, God's Word is a gift to us, but God's Word shows us how we should think. And we don't have to wait until we feel like it to think that way. If we just sit around saying, well, you know, when I feel like it, I'll think that way, we're going to be wasting a lot of time. We should grab hold of what we are to think and think it now. And a great way to do this, first, study His Word and then pray. So the way you think, how you perceive what you know is real is what is going to make you powerful and joyful from a spiritual, uh, from a spiritual life that follows Christ. The way you think, the way you perceive things, what you know to be truly real. And we can lose sight of that. You know, it's actually quite true that this world that we're in is not real. I mean, it is. It's very real. This pulpit is real. But none of this is going to remain. Right? There's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. This body is not going to remain, but there's going to be a new body. What is going to remain is what I am within. My inner self is my spiritual life, my soul, my spirit, my heart, my mind, you know, what I, my knowledge. Those things are going to remain. My relationship with Christ is going to remain. Christ is going to remain. The Word of God is going to remain. The works that we do that are divine are going to remain. 
Uh, and so we lose sight of the real just because it's invisible. And we look at the visible and start to think it's real. Uh, God corrects us of this thinking in his word. We must grab hold of it. Don't wait. <clears throat> Since it, it, it must be that God wants us to know this way of thinking and adopt it into our own hearts. So we, we can either wait and hope that someday we'll feel like adopting it or grab hold of it now. Committed to thinking this way as we are committed to following Christ. And so we would say, what I would say is grab hold of spiritual maturity now. So what, I mean, if you don't feel mature, who cares? Don't put it off. What is exactly <clears throat> your flesh would prefer? Uh, we don't read in the Bible about stages of spiritual growth. It's sometimes taught that way. Uh, I don't do it that way. I used to, but I don't do it that way anymore because it makes us all think that we should wait too long, in my opinion. That, uh, you know, we're, the Bible says, do this now. There's nothing in it that says, wait until you grow up. It says that we're to grow in grace and knowledge, absolutely. But the commands that you see in the scripture uh, don't have a time stamp on them for the future. They are to do them now. So grab hold of maturity now. All right, go back to Psalm 105. Psalm 105 also emphasizes thanks and praise based on God's work in history, especially his faithfulness to his covenant. <clears throat> Look at Psalm 105.1. Oh, give thanks to the Lord. Call upon his name. Make known his deeds among the peoples. Sing to him. Sing praises to him. Speak of all his wonders. What's common between this one and Psalm 78, which is also about history, is that we are to make known his deeds to the people. And that's our witnessing. And, uh, and we are each to do that to our loved ones, friends, neighbors, uh, make known his deeds among the people. Verse 2, sing to him, sing praises to him, speak of all his wonders. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. Seek the Lord in his strength. Seek his face continually. Remember his wonders which he has done, his marvels and the judgments uttered by his mouth. O seed of Abraham, his servant. O sons of Jacob, his chosen ones. He is the Lord our God. His judgments are in all the earth. <clears throat> now, because, again, this is a, psalm, a history psalm. It, it, it actually is a bit long. Uh, comparatively so, though. Remember, you say, well, well, good Lord, it's like 50, 60 lines. But each line is, uh, you know, it's not even a sentence long. And it really would take you 10 minutes to read this psalm. Uh, don't be scared by their length is what I mean. Go through them. And when God gives you a long psalm, that means he wants you to spend time. Right? He doesn't want you to chew it up. He wants you to spend time. And in that psalm, there's going to be one theme, one or two, but no more than two, really. Then they're going to be there, this theme, and God wants you to concentrate on this theme, mull it over in your head. Poetry has a way of making you mull things over because there's imagery uh, and there's a, there's a scheme to it that you, you have to be careful about and concentrate. And so God wants you to focus. Some psalms are five lines long. Right? Psalm 23, the most famous, it's one of the reasons I think it's famous because it's, so, it's short. It's only six verses. But there's a lot packed in those six verses. Uh, 
And anyway, if you get a bigger psalm, God wants you to spend time. You've got 10 minutes. You can do it. You know, not saying just you guys. I mean, everybody who's listening. Uh, <clears throat> so um, first, notice verse 3. Glory in his holy name. Let the heart of those who seek the Lord be glad. That word glad and that where we're all after is happiness in our hearts, happiness within ourselves. Why are we to have it? There's one reason given here. You seek the Lord. That's it. Because you seek the Lord. This way you have to understand how magnificent the Lord is, how enormous, truthful, holy, wonderful And the fact that as you seek that, and God says, look, you seek me with all your heart, you're going to find me. And so as I seek him, I know I'm going to find him. This is what gives me great joy and should give all of us joy. And that way we can throw off this uh, slavery to materials and circumstances and people where our happiness depends on how a person is behaving or how a person is acting or they're in my life, they're not in my life, the situation of my life. And all of that can be pushed aside. Not that those things don't challenge me, but if I can find my true happiness from the Lord and the Lord alone, seeking his face. Notice at the start of verse 3, it says, glory in his holy name. All right, glory. What's his name? It's his person. It's who he is. And I glory in that. I seek him. And that's what makes my heart glad. I mean, that's, that's life. That truly is the Christian life. Uh, this history now begins earlier. Uh, Psalm 106 began with the Exodus. Psalm 105 begins with Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Uh, its main thrust is the faithfulness of God to his covenant. So why put the history? So look at verse 8. It says, He has remembered his covenant forever, the word which he commanded to a thousand generations. He has, for all the generations, he has uh, remembered his covenant, the word he commanded, he has remembered it. So why not just say that and make it a short psalm? Because that's what really the thrust of the psalm is in that one line, really two lines. But without the actual history... It's not near as rich. And that's why Psalm 105 would include the history, same with Psalm 78. Throughout the Old Testament narrative, we come to know these people. Like they're our old friends, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. We come to know them. We remember their story. We remember their, what's revealed to us of their life. We remember their faithfulness. We remember their doubt that they had at times. We remember their struggle. We remember their sins. We remember their successes. Uh, We remember how they had times, how God carried them through, how God helped them, rebuked them. And with Jacob, I mean, how can you forget the scene if you've read it, that God wrestled with him. And Jacob would not let go of him. And, you know, what a scene. As Jacob is... Not a good believer at the time that that happens, but it changed him in more ways than one. We remember the harsh and unfair treatment of Joseph. You know, he ended up in Egypt. His harsh treatment by his brothers who sold him into slavery. 
And most of them wanted to kill him. If it wasn't for the older brother, Reuben, he would have been murdered. But uh, they sold him into slavery and God delivered him. How he became the prime minister of Egypt and saved his family. We are also reminded that God provides the means of faithfulness or rebellion. Uh, and this, this is a wonderful thing that we need to know. And it's about God's history. Who brought the ten plagues to Egypt? Obviously, God did. Who delivered Joseph in Egypt? God did. And that ended up, it's like a domino effect. You know, whether, you know, God is the one moving the chess pieces. And he's not causing sin. People are doing that. But God is making things happen. So, for instance, if you take the ten plagues as an example, if you and I and all those people were in Egypt at the time of the plagues, well, we've got one or two responses. That we can believe in the Lord or we can reject him. We could say they're coincidences. We could believe the Egyptian magicians that Pharaoh used. We could be either like Pharaoh or we could be like Moses. And, uh, you know, so God brings the situation and therefore God brings the, the opportunity for either you or I to accept him or reject him. And God is working in our lives every day. And when I think about it, I think about the few things that are different in my life as of late, but are those coincidences? Did that just happen, like the wind changed direction? Or is God actually doing something? And unfortunately for us, it's when we look in the past, years past, we say, ah, oh, all right. And it's because you're, you're looking at a long period of time in a short period of time, you know, kind of like a snapshot, and you can see a pattern. And you say, oh, I, I can actually see what God was doing there. But at the front of it, in the middle of it, the end of it, I wasn't looking. Right? I wasn't praying. I wasn't asking. I wasn't looking. And, and that should change for us as we mature. Every day, what is God doing? I mean, the things that are in your life, do they have a purpose? Or is God just, does he willy-nilly just do things? If God moves a pawn on the chessboard, is it a wasted move? The very little bit of chess I've played is that when, uh, my my uh, brother-in-law taught me that he was uh, studying to be a chess master. I don't think he ever made it that far, but uh, he, he was into chess for a lot of years, studied it. And he, his advice to me was, Joe, when you're in doubt, move a pawn. You know, if you don't know what to do, what to move, and you're stuck, just take a pawn and move it. Does God do that? Has God ever stuck? Is he ever like, yeah, you know, I don't really care, just move a pawn? Or is everything in our lives intricately created and decreed by God, like a watchmaker who knows like every intimate detail? The very hairs of your head are numbered. And that's what these Psalms bring out. So, let's see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Go to the end. This is, so, this is not the way to read a psalm, by the way. To read the first few lines and then the last few lines. It said, I read it. Uh, verse 44. 
He gave them also the lands of the nations that they might take possession of the fruit of the people's labor so that they might keep his statutes and observe his laws. Praise the Lord. And just like in Psalm 106 is here, praise the Lord. At the front of this psalm, it's, oh, give thanks to the Lord. And at the end, just like in Psalm 106, it's praise the Lord. What's the first line in 106 is praise the Lord. So 105 and 106 go together, obviously, uh, because they're both very, very similar. And so what is this about at the end? We're reminded that God, again, remembers. He will never forget his covenant. He will never forget his promises to Israel, and therefore he will not forget his promises to us. God took care of Israel, even though they rejected him again and again. Now, a lot of people suffered for their rejection, and individually we will. But God's covenant promise to the nation, to the people, will not be broken, and his covenant promise to you will not be either. Now, you might go through a whole life of discipline from God and misery because you never got with it, but his promise to you will always be yes and amen. All right, one last thing. Go to Psalm 78. I can do this in a minute. There's another great benefit to prayer. And I've already mentioned this, but I want to emphasize it. And this, you know, you've got, if you don't feel like praying, pray. Uh, if, if you can only concentrate for a few minutes, so be it. Do it. Pray and, and come back to it and keep praying. Uh, and it's a, another one of the benefits here. We're not going to get through the spiritual life into any level of maturity if we're not going to pray. And that is, this benefit is you can't lie to God. The, <clears throat> who are the best liars? Right? The ones that, that you see them, they get on TV and with a straight face, they say something that is a bold-faced lie. How do they do that? Right? They say, we say they have no conscience. <laughs> Maybe so. But who, who makes the best liars? are the ones who actually come to believe their own lies. And so they say it with such confidence. Uh, in prayer, so and we can do this. We uh, can self-justify and self-deceive. And I say concerning sin or weakness or anything, we want to you know, portray ourselves in a way that is better than what we are we come to believe that we're better than what we are, and then we can sell it a little better. We come to believe that this sin is not a weakness, and so we sell it to ourselves a little better. We come to believe that this, level, this area of weakness is not all that dangerous to me, so you know, it helps me pursue the weakness. And here's the thing. We can lie to ourselves. We're pretty good at it. We can definitely lie to others. If you lie to yourself, your lie to others is going to be more convincing. And so we can become very good liars. When you're at God in prayer and you're talking to him about whatever it is in the scripture, you can't lie. And, you know, in the if you understand that when you're praying that you're in your inner room with God, one-on-one, face-to-face, how in the world are you going to lie to him? And this means that you also have to be honest with yourself. 
And perhaps in prayer is the only place that you can be truly honest with yourself because you're in the presence of one who knows you more than anyone by a mile. He knows you. He knows every thought. He knows every motivation. He knows every single little thing about you. And so you can't lie to him. Therefore, prayer makes us honest with ourselves. And that is an awesome benefit to prayer. Uh, Psalm 78 is 72 verses long. Again, it's historical. It's long. Uh, But within it, we find, just like we read in Psalm 105, or maybe it was 106, (laughs) that we are to be those who speak to others about the history of God. In other words, his redemptive history. We are to speak to others about Christ, the cross of Christ, God's faithfulness to Israel, God's faithfulness to his people, his covenant promises, and within also the gospel. And we are to be, um, so it says in verse in 78, it says, we will not conceal them from their children to tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. We will tell to the generation to come the praises of the Lord and his strength and his wondrous works which he has done. We are going to tell others about the wondrous works of God, which is the history of God. And look, and, and just I'll just leave it at that point alone, <clears throat> is that do we really do that? Do I praise God for his creation? Have I told others about God's history? Have I told it to my children, to my family, to my friends, to my neighbors, to my acquaintances? And if I have, have I done it with conviction? Have I done that? Because I'm called to. And if I haven't, I can lie to myself and say, you know, it's all right. I don't really have to do that. It's not a big deal. They kind of know anyway, don't they? I I justify it in many ways because a lot of us don't want to tell about him to others because I might get laughed at or people aren't going to pay attention. They're going to think I'm I'm a whatever. And and I'm more concerned about people's opinions than I am about God. The application of the history psalms, one of them is me as a witness. And if I'm in prayer with God, I can easily talk to him who knows anyway. He knows whether I witness of him or I don't. And I can talk to him about that. And, there, and then over, say, well, what's the problem? Why won't I do it? What am I afraid of? And deal with that with him. The one who understands, the one who knows, the one who forgives. And deal with that with him so that you overcome. And, and so in prayer, we're actually taking great advantage of God's all-seeing omniscience. And in intimacy with him, using that omniscience to deal with ourselves honestly. And when you're honest in things like that, you've started the road to overcoming them. And, and that's a, you get that from these history psalms as well. All right, so tomorrow... We'll look at another subject in Psalms. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for uh, your magnificent word. Thank you for the way that it speaks to us, the way that it guides us, the way that it opens our eyes to what we should pray for and how, and to further our relationship with you. We are so grateful, Father, for all that you are and do. In Christ's name, amen.